You are listening to the Auditory Entertainment's production of Creatures of the Light by Sophie Wenzel Ellis. Performed by Miranda Johnson. Part 1 In a nightclub of many lights and much high-pitched laughter, where he had come for an hour of forgetfulness and an execrable dinner, John Northwood was suddenly conscious that fate had begun shuffling the cards of his destiny for a dramatic game. First, he was aware that the singularly ugly and deformed man at the next table was gazing at him with an intense, almost excited scrutiny. But more disturbing than this was the scowl of hate on the face of another man, as handsome as this other one was hideous, who sat in a far corner hidden behind a broad column with rude elbows on the table, gawking first at Northwood and then at the deformed, almost hideous man. Northwood's blood chilled over the expression on the handsome, fair-haired stranger's perfectly carved face. If a figure in marble could display a fierce, unnatural passion, it would seem no more eldritch than the hate in those icy blue eyes. It was not a new experience for Northwood to be stared at. He was not merely a good-looking young fellow of twenty-five. He was scenery, magnificent and compelling. Furthermore, he had been in the public eye for years, first as a precocious child, and later as a brilliant young scientist. Yet, for all his experience with hero-worshippers, to put a adamantine crust on his sensibilities, he grew warm-eared under the gaze of these two strangers, this hunchback with a face like a grotesque mask in a Greek play, and this other who, even more handsome than himself, chilled the body queerly with the cold perfection of his godlike masculine beauty. Northwood sensed something familiar about the hunchback. Somewhere he had seen that huge, round, intelligent face splattered with startling features. The very breadth of the man's massive brow was not altogether unknown to him, nor could Northwood look into the mournful, near-sighted black eyes without trying to recall when and where he had last seen them. But this other, of the marble-perfect nose and jaw, the blonde, thick-waved hair, was totally a stranger, whom Northwood fervently hoped he would never know too well. Trying to analyze the repugnance that he felt for this handsome, boldly staring fellow, Northwood decided, He's like a newly-made wax figure, endowed with life. Shivering over his own fantastic thought, he again glanced swiftly at the hunchback, who he noticed was playing with his coffee, evidently to prolong the meal. One year of calm-headed scientific teaching in a famous old eastern university had not made him callous to mysteries. Thus, with a feeling of high adventure, he finished his supper and prepared to go. From the corner of his eye, he saw the hunchback leave his seat, while the handsome man behind the column rose furtively, as though he, too, intended to follow. Northwood was out in the dusky street about thirty seconds, when the hunchback came from the foyer. Apparently, without noticing Northwood, he hailed a taxi. On his way to the taxi, his thick shoulder jostled the younger man. 
Northwood felt something strike his foot and, stooping in the crowded street, picked up a black leather wallet. Wait! he shouted as the hunchback stepped into the waiting taxi. But the man did not falter. In a moment, Northwood lost sight of him as the taxi moved away. He debated with himself whether or not he should attempt to follow. And while he stood thus in indecision, the handsome stranger approached him. Good evening to you, he said curtly. His rich, musical voice, for all its deepness, held a faint hint of the tremulous, bird-like notes heard in the voice of a young child who has not used his vocal cords long enough for them to have lost their exquisite newness. Good evening, echoed Northwood, somewhat uncertainly. A sudden aura of repulsion swept coldly over him, Seen close, with the bright light of the street directly on his too-perfect face, the man was more sinister than in the café. Yet Northwood, struggling desperately for a reason to explain his violent dislike, could not discover why he shrank from this splendid creature whose eyes and flesh had a new, fresh appearance, rarely seen except in very young boys. I want what you picked up, went on the stranger. It isn't yours. Nor is it yours. Give it to me. You're insolent, aren't you? If you don't give it to me, you will be sorry. The man did not raise his voice in anger, yet the words whipped Northwood with almost physical violence. If he knew that I saw everything that happened in there, that I am talking to you at this moment, he would tremble with fear. But you can't intimidate me. No. For a long moment, the cold blue eyes held his contemptuously. No, I can't frighten you, you worm of the dark age. Before Northwood's horrified sight, he vanished vanished as though he had turned suddenly to air and floated away. The street was not crowded at that time, and there was no pressing group of bodies to hide the splendid creature. Northwood gawked stupidly, mouth half open, eyes searching wildly everywhere. The man was gone. He had simply disappeared in this electric-lighted street. Suddenly, close to Northwood's ear, grated a derisive laugh. I can't frighten you. From nowhere came that singularly old young voice. As Northwood jerked his head around to meet blank space, a blow struck the corner of his mouth. He felt the warm blood run over his chin. I could take that wallet from you, worm. But you may keep it and see me later. But remember this. The thing inside will never be yours. The words fell from empty air. For several minutes, Northwood waited at the spot, expecting another demonstration of the abnormal, but nothing else occurred. At last, trembling violently, he wiped the thick moisture from his forehead and dabbed at the blood which he still felt on his chin. But when he looked at his handkerchief, he muttered, Well, I'll be damned. The handkerchief bore not the slightest trace of blood. 
Under the light in his bedroom, Northwood examined the wallet. It was made of alligator skin, clasped with a gold signet that bore the initial M. The first pocket was empty. The second yielded an object that sent a warm flush to his face. It was the photograph of a gloriously beautiful girl, so seductively lovely that the picture seemed almost to be alive. The short, curved upper lip, the full, delicately voluptuous lower, parted slightly in a smile that seemed to linger in every exquisite line of her face. She looked as though she had just spoken passionately, and the spirit of her words had inspired her sweet flesh and eyes. Northwood turned his head abruptly and groaned. Good heavens! He had no right to palpitate over the picture of an unknown beauty. Only a month ago he had become engaged to a young woman whose mind was as brilliant as her face was plain. Always he had vowed that he would never marry a pretty girl, for he detested his own masculine beauty sincerely. He tried to grasp a mental picture of Mary Burns, who had never stirred in him the emotion that this smiling picture invoked. But gazing at the picture, he could not remember how his fiancée looked. Suddenly the picture fell from his fingers and dropped to the floor on its face, revealing an inscription on the back. In a bold, masculine hand, he read, Your future wife. Some lucky fellow is headed for a life of bliss was his jealous thought. He frowned at the beautiful face. What was this girl to that hideous hunchback? Why did the stranger warn him, The thing inside will never be yours. Again, he turned eagerly to the wallet. In the last flap, he found something that gave him another surprise. A plain white card on which a name and address were written by the same hand that had pinned the inscription on the picture. Email Mudson, Ph.D., 44 and a half in Dian Court. Email Munson, the electrical wizard and distinguished scientific writer, friend of the professor of science at the university where Northwood was an assistant professor. Email Mudson, whom, a week ago, Northwood had yearned mightily to meet. Now Northwood knew why the hunchback's intelligent, ugly face was familiar to him. He had seen it pictured as often as enterprising new photographers could steal a likeness from the oversensitive scientist who would never sit for a formal portrait. Even before Northwood had graduated from the university where he now taught, he had been avidly interested in Emil Mudson's fantastic articles in scientific journals. Only a week ago, Professor Michael had come to him with the current issue of New Science, shouting excitedly, did you read this, John? This article by Emil Mudson. His shaking, gnarled old fingers tapped the open magazine. Northwood seized the magazine and looked avidly at the title of the article. Creatures of the Light. No, I haven't read it, he admitted. My magazine hasn't come yet. Run through it now briefly, will you? And note with especial care the passages I have marked. In fact, you needn't bother with anything else just now. Read this, and this, and this. He pointed out penciled paragraphs. Northwood read, Man always has been, always will be, a creature of the light. 
he is forever reaching for some future point of perfected evolution. Even when his most remote ancestor was a fish creature composed of a few cells, it is this yearning for perfection which sets man apart from all other life, which made him man even in the rudimentary stages of his development. He was man when he wallowed in the slime of the new world and yearned for the air above. He will still be man when he has evolved to that glorious creature of the future whose body is deathless and whose mind rules the universe. Professor Michael, looking over Northwood's shoulder, interrupted the reading. Man always has been man. That's not original with friend Mutson, of course. Yet, it is a theory that has not received sufficient investigation. He indicated another marked paragraph. Read this thoughtfully, John. It's the crux of Mudson's thought. Northwood continued. Since the human body is chemical and electrical, increased knowledge of its powers and limitations will enable us to work with nature in her sublime but infinitely slow process of human evolution. We need not wait another 50,000 years to be godlike creatures. Perhaps even now we may be standing at the beginning of the splendid bridge that will take us to that state of perfected evolution when we shall be creatures who have reached the light. Northwood looked questioningly at the professor. Strange, fantastic thing, isn't it? Professor Michael smoothed his thin gray hair with his dried-out hand. Fantastic? Who can say? Haven't you ever wondered why all parents expect their children to be nearer perfection than themselves? And why it is a natural impulse for them to be willing to sacrifice themselves to better their offspring? He paused and moistened his pale, wrinkled lips. Instinct, Northwood. We creatures of the light know that the human race shall reach that point in evolution when, as perfect creatures, we shall rule all matter and live forever. He punctuated the last words with blows on the table. Northwood laughed dryly. How many thousands of years are you looking forward, Professor? The professor made an obscure noise that sounded like a smothered sniff. <laughs> you and I shall never agree on the point that mental advancement may wipe out physical limitations in the human race, perhaps in a few hundred years. It seems as though your profound admiration for Dr. Mutson would win you over to this pet theory. But what sane man could believe that even perfectly developed beings, through mental control, could overcome nature's fixed laws? We don't know. The professor slapped the magazine with an emphatic hand. Email Mutson hasn't written this article for nothing. He's paving the way for some announcement that will startle the scientific world. I know him. In the same manner he gave out veiled hints of his various brilliant discoveries and inventions long before he offered them to the world. But Dr. Mutson is an electrical wizard. He would not be delving seriously into the mysteries of evolution, would he? Why not? The professor's wizened face screwed up wisely. A year ago, 
when he was back from one of those mysterious long excursions he takes in that weirdly different aircraft of his, about which he is so secretive, he told me that he was conducting experiments to prove his belief that the human brain generates electric current and that the electrical impulses in the brain set up radioactive waves that someday, among other miracles, will make thought communication possible. Perfect humankind, he says, will perform mental feats which will give him complete mental domination over the physical. Northwood finished reading and turned thoughtfully to the window. His profile in repose had the straight-nosed, full-lipped perfection of a Greek coin. Old, wizened Professor Michael, gazing at him covertly, smothered a sigh. I wish you knew Dr. Mudson, he said. He, the ugliest man in the world, delights in physical perfection. He would revel in your splendid body and brilliant mind. Northwood blushed hotly. You'll have to arrange a meeting between us. I have. The professor's thin, dry lips pursed comically. He'll drop in to see you within a few days. And now, John Northwood sat holding Dr. Mudson's card and the wallet which the scientist had so mysteriously dropped at his feet. It's a challenge, he said softly. It won't hurt to see what it's all about. His watch showed eleven o'clock. He would return the wallet that night. Into his coat pocket, he slipped a revolver. One sometimes needed weapons in Indian court. He took a taxi, which soon turned from the well-lighted streets into a section where squalid houses crowded against each other and dirty children swarmed in the streets in their last games of the day. Indian court was little more than an alley, dark and evil-smelling. The cabbie stopped at the entrance and said, If I drive in, I'll have to drive back out, sir. Number 44 and a half is the end house, facing the entrance. You've been here before? asked Northwood. Now that you mention it, last week I drove the strangest fella here, fella as good-looking as you, who had me follow a taxi occupied by a hunchback with a face like old Nick. The man hesitated and went on, haltingly. It might sound goofy, mister, but there was something funny about my fare. He jumped out, asked me the charge, and in the moment I glanced at my taxi meter, he disappeared. Yes, sir. Vanished. Owing me four dollars and some change. It was almost ghost-like, mister. Northwood laughed nervously and dismissed him. He found his number and knocked at the dilapidated door. He heard a sudden movement in the lighted room beyond, and the door opened quickly. Dr. Munson faced him. I knew you'd come, he said with a slight Teutonic accent. Often I'm not wrong in sizing up my man. Come in. Northwood cleared his throat awkwardly. <clears throat> you dropped your wallet at my feet, Dr. Mudson. I tried to stop you before you got away, but I guess you didn't hear me. He offered the wallet, but the hunchback waved it aside. A ruse, of course.
he confessed. It was just my way of testing what your Professor Michael told me about you. That you are an extraordinarily intelligent, virile, and imaginative person. Had you sent the wallet to me, I should have sought elsewhere for my man. Come in! Northwood followed him into a living room, evidently recently furnished in a somewhat hurried manner. The furniture, although rich, was not placed to best advantage. The new rug was a trifle crooked on the floor, and the lampshades clashed in color with the other furnishings. Dr. Mudson's intense eyes swept over Northwood's tall, slim body. Ah, you're a man, he said softly. You are what all men would be if we followed nature's plan, that only the fit shall survive. But modern science is permitting the unfit to live, and to mix their defective beings with the developing human race. His huge fist gestulated madly. Fools! They need me, and perfect men like you. Why? Because you can help me in my plan to populate the earth with a new race of godlike people. But don't question me too closely now. Even if I were to explain, you would call me insane. But watch. Gradually I shall unfold the mystery before you, so that you will believe. He reached for the wallet that Northwood still held opened it with a monstrous hand, and reached for the photograph. She shall bring you love. She is more beautiful than a poet's dream. A warm flush crept over the young man's face. I can easily understand, he said, how a man could love her. But for me she comes too late. Ah, fiddlesticks! The scientist snapped his fingers. This girl was created for you. That other? You will forget her the moment you set eyes on the sweet flesh of this, Athalia. She is a maiden of musk and incense. He held the girl's photograph toward the young man. Keep it. She is yours. If you are strong enough to hold her. Northwood opened his card case and placed the picture inside, facing Mary's photograph. Again, the warning words of the mysterious stranger rang in his memory. That thing inside will never be yours. Where to? he said eagerly. And when do we start? To the new Garden of Eden, said the scientist, with such a beatific smile that his face was less hideous. We start immediately. I have arranged with Professor Michael for you to go. Northwood followed Dr. Mudson to the street and walked with him a few blocks to a garage where the scientist's motor car waited. The apartment in Indian Court is just a little eccentricity of mine, explained Dr. Mudson. I need people in my work, people whom I must select through swift and sure tests. The apartment comes in handy, as it did tonight. Northwood scarcely noted where they were going, or how long they had been on the way. He was vaguely aware that they had left the city behind and were now passing through farms bathed in moonlight. At last they entered a path that led through a bit of woodland. For half a mile, the path continued, 
and then ended at a small enclosed field. In the middle of this rested a strange aircraft. Northwood knew it was a flying machine only by the propellers mounted on the top of the huge, ball-shaped body. There were no wings, no bird-like hull, no tail. It looks almost like a little world, ready to fly off into space, he commented. It is just about that. The scientist's squat, bunched-out body settled squarely on long, thin, straddled legs, looked gnome-like in the moonlight. One cannot copy flesh with steel and wood, but one can make metal perform magic of which flesh is not capable. My sonship is not a mechanical reproduction of a bird. It is... Well, just climb in, young friend. Northwood followed Dr. Mudson into the aircraft. The moment the scientists closed the metal door behind them, Northwood was incessantly aware of some concealed horror that vibrated through his nerves. For one dreadful moment, he expected that terrific agent of the shadows that escaped the electric lights to leap upon him. And this was odd, for nothing could be saner than the globular interior of the aircraft, divided into four wedge-shaped apartments. Dr. Munson also paused at the door, puzzled, hesitant. Someone has been here. Look, Northwood. The bunk has been occupied. The one in this cabin I had set aside for you. He pointed to the disarranged bunk where the impression of a head could still be seen on a pillow. A tramp, perhaps? No. The door was locked. And as you saw, the fence around this field was protected with barbed wire. There's something wrong. I felt it in my trip all the way here, like someone's watching me in the dark. And don't laugh. I have stopped laughing at all things that seem unnatural. You don't know what is natural. Northwood shivered. Maybe someone is concealed about the ship. Me, I thought so too at first, but I looked and looked and there was nothing. All evening, Northwood had burned to tell the scientist about the handsome stranger in the Mad Hatter Club, but even now he shrank from saying that a man had vanished before his eyes. Dr. Munson was working with a succession of buttons and levers. There was a slight jerk, and then the strange craft shot up, straight as a bullet from a gun, with scarcely a sound other than a continuous whistle. You have been listening to the Auditory Entertainment's production of Creatures of the Light, written by Sophie Wenzel Ellis, performed by Miranda Johnson. If you have enjoyed this performance, please subscribe, leave a comment, or a review. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Auditory Entertainments. Thank you for listening.